Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Nathan Oblack. Hello and welcome to the podcast for cultural reformation. I'm Nathan Oblack and I'm as usual joined by Ryan Harris and Dr. Joe Boot. And it's just the three of us today after a couple of weeks uh, with Dr. James White, and we were certainly glad to have him with us on the podcast, and we're excited to have him as one of our speakers for this year's Runner Academy. And in addition to the Runner Academy and our other uh, residential training programs, uh, we also are hosting our one-day Mission of God conference. And this year, the conference will be held on Saturday, June 5th here at our study center in Grimsby, Ontario. The theme for this year's conference is climate, COVID, and the cultural crisis. Dr. Boot will be speaking as well as Dr. Calvin Beisner, who is the founder and national spokesman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Together, they'll be answering the questions, how should Christians think about the government's COVID-related measures, and what is the connection between these recent actions and the broader issue of climate policy? What are the social, spiritual, economic, and health implications? And what is a biblical response? You can register for this conference by going to our website, ezrainstitute.ca. And our topic for today's uh, conversation is globalism. Often uh, there's a lot of confusion between globalism and globalization. And Joe, perhaps uh, at the outset here, you can help us make uh, the distinction between the two. Sure. So... The topic of of globalism is, I think, acutely relevant, actually, at the moment f- with respect to everything that's uh, going on. Uh, we can think south of the border with respect to um, election results and the new administration in Washington and some of the decisions they're making early on. We can think about the, the response to the um, COVID-related crisis and so on. Um, and uh, we can think even about the the... the perennial discussions and uh, way in which the the idea of man-made catastrophic man-made global warming climate change is impacting the whole discussion but to define terms uh is important because the uh the nomenclature that's used around this issue is sometimes confusing so globalization uh, essentially means the interconnectedness, the increasing interconnectedness of the world today. And a lot of that is, of course, related to technology, mm-hmm. uh, communications, mm-hmm. international travel, uh, the way in which um, markets are so interconnected today. So if you think about the fact that, you know, while we're awake and uh, and, and at work, uh, slugging it out here during our long days. Uh, shoulder to the wheel. Shoulder to the wheel. Uh <laughs> We are, the markets are open in uh, New York, London, and so on. But then when we go to bed, the Asian markets and so forth are all operating. So you've got this constant uh, interconnectedness of the markets and various other things. And so that, that these sort of complex processes are what we mean when we talk about uh, globalization, the way in which the actions of one group, one nation, uh, and their political decisions and so forth mm. um, will impact, have an impact on 
other nations and the way in which markets and um, multinational corporations compared to, you know, even 60 or 70 years ago, just the sheer number of mm. multinational corporations and so on now. So there's been big change there. That's what that's what globalization is really referring to, this sort of complexity of, of, uh, of processes. Globalism, um, on the other hand, uh, is about more than uh, simply these complex processes that are uh, changing the, the the world. Certainly, that our grandparents lived in so mm -hmm. so significantly. Uh, it's it's an ideological idea, um, and it's centered in the the notion that we need to democratize the world. Uh, that uh, essentially a a peculiar particular type of secular um, humanistic way of doing things and looking at things should be internationalized. Um, it's, uh, it preaches international law, international rights, uh, uh, international multilateral supranational uh, governmental institutions. It will, it will speak about um, a new world order. Um, so moving beyond simply what we might call internationalism, uh, which is describing the processes in which uh, nations um, are becoming uh, much more interactive and affecting one another in the way in a way that they didn't in the past, to what we might call this grand talk of a new era, mm. a new mm -hmm. world, a new world order based around this radical notion of democratization, mm. and and of course with it uh, various multi. Uh, um, uh, unilateral um, or multilateral, I don't know what the correct word would be there, uh, institutions and organizations mm. uh, that are that are positioned then to help uh, with the structure mm. Mm -hmm. of um, begin to put in terms of concrete structures in place for this ideological vision of globalism. So mm -hmm. that's fundamentally the uh, the difference one is a is an ideology about political mm. life the other is more descriptive about the interaction of uh, and the interconnectedness of mm. the modern world mm. it sounds like one of the meaningful differences between the two is the way that they answer one of those classic worldview questions mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. who's in charge here mm. right yeah and mm. you mentioned joe that uh, it flows out of a secular humanist framework which uh, should be obvious that it can't fit within a biblical framework. So how how should we uh, think through globalism Christianly? Well, that's a that's a broad that's a big question. Obviously, a broad brush. So let me maybe just start with a, mm -hmm. a ten thousand foot view, and then we can uh, mm -hmm. maybe get into a few more of the details. Sure. But essentially, uh, as we look at uh, scripture, and as we look at the the world into which the scriptures um, were first delivered, first written, um, if we start with ancient Israel, for example, um, and their encounters with the nations around them, we do see immediately two very different perspectives on human society uh, and the goal of human society. And uh, the we'll maybe come to the to the more modern era in a moment as it emerged from the Greeks. But if but if we start um, back with the the Bible and uh, the Older Testament, uh, 
the nation of Israel as a nation is quite a remarkable thing. And, and perhaps we don't give enough attention, actually, to the significance simply of the existence mm. of the nation of Israel mm. and its constitution, as we should in terms of reflecting on this mm. issue and how it differed from the pagan nations around them. So we think, I think we've mentioned before on our podcast that uh, the Tower of Babel was, in a sense, the first uh, experiment of the globalists, of, of ancient globalists, of a mm -hmm, kind of globalism. Mm -hmm. there, was a, there was one language. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the, 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 the desire not to uh, obey God's command to spread out and fill the earth. And they moved as one. And there seemed to be, if you will, a, a sort of pagan religious unity uh, to the project that was anti-God. That's implicit in um, uh, uh, Nimrod and uh, the very the very meaning of his name, you know, the, mm -hmm. the mighty hunter against the Lord. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the builders of those very early civilizations that we get a, a hint at there in the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 11, um, and uh, it seems that this character Nimrod was was a was a founder of a number of ancient cities, including uh, Babylon. Now, as you know, God uh, didn't look kindly on this globalist project hmm. uh, that sought this um, unity against the Lord in terms of man's idea and his own religious idea, and he confused the languages at Babel, and in 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 by doing so, forced the spreading out of the peoples. Um, across the across the earth, hmm. and um, Paul in Acts seventeen makes a kind of reference uh, to that when he talks about how God has established the boundaries, the times, and the boundaries of these nations in history. Um, and there was a purpose in it that they might seek after the Lord. So there was a there was a, a specific purpose in God wanting peoples to spread out um, and to um, have boundaries and build nations. Hmm. And so the the first globalist project, I think, um, was destroyed um, mm. by the Lord. But then you see it taking shape with ancient Babylon, and actually, um, when you when you look at the scripture, you got um, Egypt, uh, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome, mm. um, and the these these nations developing. Uh, alongside, if you will, the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. And God takes a, an, a, an essentially nomadic group of people um, out of Egypt, delivers them, and with them forms a nation. And the, they're, they're given a specific land that has given boundaries and a given territory, and they're given a constitution by the Lord based in the... Um, the, the law of Moses, and, and they're given very specific restrictions um, and instructions. And so you see that there's, there's two uh, visions of society. Uh, one is, uh, is, is a globalist imperialism. What was common about all of those ancient empires that I've just mentioned? Well, they all sort of believed that if you could uh, expand your boundaries as far as is humanly possible, mm. um, you could uh, mm. gradually develop um, a, a one world mm. power or at least a, 
uh, a power that dictated to the rest of the world how things were going to be. And mm. so this expansionism of those early empires um, had a, a very much a globalist uh, note to them. They believed these great empires and their kings believed themselves to be on some kind of a religious mandate or mission to unify the world under one state power. And, uh, uh, of course, they only realize that to limited degrees. And, of course, you don't have to just look at the ancient world. You can come through to mm. the, the, the Mongol Empire um, mm. and um, the various, uh, eventually various European empires and even the British Empire, although there's some differences there which perhaps we can uh, touch on uh, from terms of the Protestant nations. But this whole religious drive to have um, imperial conquest and have a um, a unified one world order, which was certainly the pagan goal. I wouldn't say it was the goal of the some of the later Protestant empire building, but it was. But it was certainly the pagan goal, and uh, it made its way even into the uh, synthetic, the synthesized view of the Greeks with Christianity. So you had the idea of um, of Christendom. Mm -hmm. The basic idea of Christendom mm -hmm. was trying to bring the uh, world under the Holy Roman mm -hmm. Empire. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and of course, that led to the conflict or at least the relationship, uh, relational conflict between various um, princes and, and the Pope. So there are these, these two visions that we see biblically and we see them early on. One is globalist, it's imperialist. We see it in all those ancient empires. And the other is this strange thing that God does <laughs> with this one people of Israel and uh, I'm, uh, let me just um, comment on something that um, in an excellent book, actually, that I do recommend to our listeners. Mm -hmm. It's called The Virtue of Nationalism by the philosopher Yoram Hazoni. He's a Jewish thinker. Um, and he uh, points out in his book, he says, it is in the Bible that we find the first sustained presentation of a different possibility to this imperialism, this globalism. A political order based on the independence of a nation living within limited borders alongside other independent nations. The Bible thus puts a new political conception on the table, a state of a single nation that is united, self-governing, and uninterested in bringing its neighbors under its rule. And uh, I thought what was particularly um, insightful as he discusses this is that he, in, in contrasting Israel... Uh, the biblical conception and the other nations of the ancient world. He says, unlike the kings of Egypt or Babylonia, the Israelite king under the Mosaic constitution is not empowered to make the laws, which are the heritage of his nation and not subject to his whim, nor does he have the power to appoint the priesthood, thereby making law and religion subservient to him. Mm. Moreover, the Mosaic law limits the king's right to tax and enslave the people, just as the limitations on Israel's borders prevent the king from embracing the dream of universal conquest. And he goes on to talk about how the biblical view of um, a nation had nothing to do with biology, it had nothing to do with race, it wasn't, you know, the German mm -hmm. folk mm -hmm. or some, you know, primitive version of mm -hmm. it. Um, he says, for biblical nations, everything depends on a shared understanding of history, language and religion that is passed from parents to children, but which outsiders can join as well. The ability of Israel to bring these foreign-born individuals into its ranks depends on their willingness to accept Israel's God, laws, and understanding of history, 
without embracing these central aspects of Israelite tradition, they will not become a part of the Israelite nation. Uh, and so there you actually have this distinction. So in the imperial visions of, uh, let's take Greece and Rome, for example, uh, and the, the Pax Romana of Rome, uh, all kinds of religions could be embraced in this pluralistic, uh, relativistic view. As long as you accepted the ultimate authority of the state and the emperor, then you go and practice whatever cult you want. Sure, mm -hmm. you can become part of this great Roman Empire. Whereas the vision of Israel, which embraced and brought in all kinds of peoples, um, this is, uh, Jethro and, uh, uh, the, of course, the story of Ruth and Naomi and mm. various others. Where, and, and, of course, the e Egyptians, who many of whom left Egypt, believed God and left Egypt with Moses and the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. So it was never an ethnic idea of nationhood, mm. but it was a religious idea that, uh, that brought about a, a distinct language, uh, a distinct constitution, and a distinct culture, and that, and and specifically from a, our Christian standpoint, that nation and that culture had a mission or purpose, which is is seen throughout the Old Testament. It's seen, I think, it's Deuteronomy four somewhere there, um, that the the other peoples would look at this nation, the whom God was amongst, who 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 were who were to be faithful to the Lord, and they would say, who who has a God like their God? Who has laws like their laws? And that they would want actually to imitate mm. then the nation of Israel. And uh, that was the, the sort of missional, um, uh, we might even say missiological purpose mm. of the nation of Israel. And that is, of course, why God established the boundaries of the nations and so on. So those are the two, Nathan, biblical, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the, from, a, from a, how we would sort of look at this from a scriptural standpoint. Those are the two different visions of human society um and of course they be, they they take a particular form in scripture and then they they begin to take shape with these later empires which perhaps in a moment we can mm -hmm. talk about in a bit more detail it seems clear from what you've said that the means the ways for accomplishing this uh, this unity and this harmonious living Mm. With, uh, amongst one another are very different between the globalist and the biblical prescription. Mm -hmm. But we're, we also read in scripture about a kingdom of God, that uh, God is gathering people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And I think you're mm -hmm. going to probably bring that in a, in a little more detail later. But I get the question in all of that is, despite the fact that the ways and means are very different, is the end goal comparable? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question too, and that actually gives me a nice segue <laughs> uh, into this. So, I endeavor to give satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> you have achieved it, my friend. Um, Ryan's been looking to get that line in for some time. <laughs> so, uh, the no, I think that's a, that's a critical point because the end goals are different. Hmm. The when you look at the the and this is where I think in, in order to understand the, the the modern conception we can go back to the Greeks and the the Greek idea of the polis the politica if you will and for for Plato and, and Aristotle uh, there was there was no real room in their thinking um, for 
with the Greek idea, you had a, 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 a religious political unity. Um, but there was no idea of within even within the nation itself, within the nation state itself, um, or the city state, a uh, areas of freedom within that society. They would they had a totalitarian conception of human society, um, and so the the goal um, we would would say of 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 the Greek and of the globalist it was ultimately utopian. Mm -hmm. It was a kingdom mm -hmm. of man. Mm -hmm. It was a religious mm -hmm. kingdom of man. And it would be, it would be arrived at through human political and philosophical genius. And in particular, you would need a philosopher Kings. You would need elites who would guide and steer every aspect of society in order to reach that, uh, golden age, that, uh, reach that end uh, achieve that um, end for um, human society and so uh, this takes a, a slightly different twist um, the theory of the polis there from the Greeks it takes a slightly different twist but it's really just a sort of reincarnation of it in the thinking of Immanuel Kant the mm -hmm. German uh, philosopher at end of the 18th and I think early 19th century so the so the Greeks uh, had this view of the the polis, and it was a, they had their their idea of human society was ultimately totalitarian. There was no space, there was no freedom as such for separate institutions and so on. Mm. And uh, you needed this group of elites to uh, dictate the terms. Well, Immanuel Kant, in his uh, his work, his sort of manifesto called Perpetual Peace, a philosophical sketch, he goes into an attack, uh, really, of the idea of, of, of a nation state. So this is taking, mm. I would say, that the Greek idea of, a, of a, a totalitarian society and globalizing it, okay? But the, the basis on which they do that is essentially the same. It's man's reason. So... This is what uh, this is what Kant actually said. He says there is only one rational way in which states coexisting with other states can emerge from the lawless condition of pure warfare. In other words, the only way you can reach this state of perpetual peace uh, is the, in the following manner. And I quote: "They must renounce their savage and lawless freedom." adapt themselves to public coercive laws and thus form an international state which would necessarily continue to grow until it embraced all the people of the earth so this whole this idea this uh, of globalism is not a new idea it's been the darling of uh, rationalistic philosophers for a long time uh, with the goal uh, Ryan of of the establishment of an international imperial state as the only possible dictate of reason. Mm. Now, obviously, that's pretty different from the conception of the the biblical conception of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, we're not uh, we're not dreaming up um, uh, an international rational state um, based on the the ironclad dictates of of man's conception of autonomous reason. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you notice the sort of very condescending tone there in Kant about these sort of barbarous, barbarous groups and barbarous peoples yeah. with their lawlessness and so on. Um, 
unlike the Enlightenment rationalist philosophers who know what's good for everybody else and need to bring everybody into their international state, which will eventually cover the whole earth. Mm -hmm. So you've got the, the common themes of a utopianism there. And of course, as we see in Rousseau um, and, the, and the contractarian thinking that emerges from the Enlightenment, um, you've also got uh, utopian thinking but but also essentially authoritarian thinking indeed totalitarian thinking where the space for the real space for freedom disappears freedom is too great a risk to give to these barbarous peoples uh no they need to be brought under the dictates of of of, of the rationalist philosopher's reason um and so you can see actually quite easily how the, the modern ideas of globalism, um, which do fly under the flags of various euphemisms of, you know, mm. um, international law and um, uh, internationalism and, and, and uh, global governance and so on and so forth, uh, are imperialistic in nature. They carry on this same stream of thought from the ancient empires through the Greeks to the rationalist philosophers. Um, there was a period there after the Reformation where the ideal became, and the ideal for, for peace and international relationships became, um, independent, sovereign nation states um, with mutual alliances, trade, treaties, but national sovereignty um, with an ability to um, uh, pursue their own goals and ends uh, within the context of their own language and culture, um, and uh, of course, within the within the Western context, those were broadly Christian lands. So there was a sort of religious unity in those nations that allowed for a greater degree of um, interaction and uh, peace uh, between those nation states. Now, sometimes it said, "Well, look, you know, the failure of that is demonstrable in." Uh, with the rise of Hitler, and therefore mm. nationalism has sort of become a dirty word, right? You know, in yeah. the, from the mid twentieth century on, as though Hitler's goal was um, uh, was a Europe of independent nation states under mm. their own sovereignty um, with um, peaceful relations. Nothing could be further from the truth. Hitler's dream was uh, to restore the Reich, right? That's mm. what he called it, yeah. the Third Reich, mm. yeah. um, to restore the Holy Roman Empire under his rule and expand it. Uh, in terms of a pagan religious ideal that would enforce Nazi rule right across Europe and then beyond. Well, that is, couldn't be, nothing could be further than the biblical vision mm -hmm. of independent sovereign nation states. So the kind of boogeyman version of nationalism um, that's sort of uh, derided today is mm -hmm. just that. It's just a straw man boogeyman. It's got nothing to do with the, uh, with the, with the reality. So, the 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 goal of the globalist is um utopian it's based in man's reason and it is essentially um not just authoritarian but ultimately totalitarian and it involves the rule of uh, of elites the ancient the greeks called them the classical greeks called them philosopher kings but um the 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 idea is essentially the same and therefore international law and international um the, the dictates of reason right that everybody can agree on the idea essentially is that you can't have 
nationalism with its independent cultures and religion because religion is divisive. Whereas for Kant and John Rawls and these uh, contractarian philosophers, no, we need a global state in which uh, man's reason, which is supposedly, and mm. the dictates of his reason, which are supposedly open to public scrutiny, whereas religion mm -hmm. isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, they're open to, 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 to um, uh, public critique, public analysis, and we can all agree on them because they are essentially neutral principles. And let's not get into critiquing that. We've done that till mm -hmm. we're blue in the face. <laughs> Uh, but that's the idea of it. So religion is divisive, so you must move towards a, essentially a one religious view uh, that submits itself to the state and the idea of international laws that are dictated by reason that cover everybody. And so you can see how effectively what this eventually uh, works out to mean, and, and um, it's been very sad to see the way in which the United States um, certainly since, you know, gradually after World War II, um, started to promote this kind of um, globalism. And of course, the, the UN has been the big mm -hmm. organization that's, that's driven it um, to, uh, toward this idea of imposing, even by economic sanction, uh, the, a radical, secular, humanistic agenda on the rest of the world. Mm. And it's what, of course, is behind some of the folly of some of our international wars as well, as though you can just, you know, drop some smart bombs on, on the Middle East and think that you can now Im uh, uh, impose a democracy and democratic institutions into Islamic countries. A democratic institutions which took centuries to build up um, through a common religious uh, heritage uh in the the west what we used to call christendom and that that you can parachute those in to completely different cultures and expect that that's going to work uh and so you, that kind of um uh a globalism that has the smiling face of globalism is the un with its uh, mm -hmm. international bodies its intercultural organizations and its threats to um, South American, African, Middle Eastern, Asian countries of cutting funding or, uh, or, or not doing this or not doing that unless you buy into, let's say, LGBTQ mm. uh, agenda, unless you buy into the abortion agenda. And of course, you've got Biden signing off on massive international mm -hmm. funding now of, mm -hmm. of, of international abortions. So it's like we are going to impose these uh, secular humanistic values that are supposedly universal. Um, uh, and parachute those on to all of these countries using various threats. And so you can see how that is a, it's a form of imperialism. It doesn't require boots on the ground carrying weapons mm -hmm. uh, to establish that kind of imperialism. And, and that is what we're sort of, I think, um, wrestling with to, to a large extent today. There mm -hmm. is a sort of final twist on that but maybe with technology, but uh, maybe we'll come to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. Well, and Joe, thinking through uh, some of these current issues, and you mentioned the Biden administration there, and uh, certainly some issues that uh, we need to think through facing us today, especially our American friends. But uh, we've got the International Monetary Fund, which is an extension of the United Nations, um, trying to uh, allow countries to draw $500 billion to address the fallout from 
the COVID response uh, and all the blunders associated with, with it that we've talked about at length. Um, it was rejected by Trump, uh, but the Biden administ- administration looks like they're going to go forward with this, uh, this uh, draw on $500 billion for countries associated with the International Monetary Fund. There are questions around that. Uh, another thing the Biden administration is likely going to do is rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, and then the third is a, a call for them to uh, eliminate many of the sanctions uh, on trade with China uh, that were imposed under Trump as well. So some real issues uh, related to globalism there. I wonder if you could help us think through some of those. Yeah, so uh, obviously, as we said at the beginning, globalization and in terms of interconnectedness and the way people view that is not monolithic. So not everybody has the same view of those international relationships and and, and, and how they're to be developed. Mm-hmm. But overall, uh, I think you can see in general there in the few examples that you've given, uh, the establishment or the creation of, 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 of vehicles, if you will, structural mm-hmm. vehicles mm-hmm. for globalism mm-hmm. um, to try and integrate people in, uh, in a fashion that they don't necessarily want. Um, let's take a couple of examples of, I think, of the of failed attempts at this right now. Um, let's take the European Union, for example. After, after World War II, the thought was, well, oh, look, you know, it was these independent nations that, 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 that created this problem, which was an incorrect analysis. Uh, so we need a European Union, uh, an ever closer union, as they talked about it, until eventually uh, it was clear that what they wanted was a European superstate. Now, when you can't even hold together countries like used to be called Yugoslavia, and that broke into... In, in, into two parts and you see all of the uh, challenges now facing Europe um, when you try and force everybody into a into a single currency you try mm. and make it a, a community where everybody can live everywhere mm-hmm. um, in a sort of borderless uh, community and all the problems that this has created um, uh, since the 90s in particular and already the project has basically failed I mean mm-hmm. Brexit has happened um, and uh, there are other European countries that are eyeing their own exit. I think the whole current crisis may well further that desire for an exit for some of those nations. The United Kingdom itself is facing the possibility of, 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 of breaking up. It's mm-hmm. the oldest political union, and it was a sensible political union. I mean, it's the same island mm-hmm. um, and the same faith. Mm-hmm. But you see, as the faith breaks down that unifies the people, you start to see that the desire for unity uh, begins to begins to break down. So when you look at, um, uh, at the, the sort of political experiments that we've seen over the last uh, number of years to try and bring about this kind of, 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 of globalism mm-hmm. that tries to ignore national sovereignty, um, national boundaries, and tries to impose um, how trade's going to happen, the, what the money is, uh, and artificially essentially impose these things from the top um you know cultures tend to have their their counter reaction and 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 that's what we're seeing um with respect to things like the paris accord um uh, the paris agreement 
again, these are um, the attempts of, uh, through pressure from, from the powerful Western nations who have their agenda with respect to uh, climate alarmism, uh, this is a this is a bullying tool for globalism because uh, what you say is here is a here is a problem in quotes that uh, can only be solved with a global with global mm-hmm. cooperation right so you mm-hmm. so you right. create the you state this problem that climates change I agree with that mm. climates mm-hmm. change they've always changed they will continue to change. Uh, but you, the, but there's this idea of catastrophic man-made uh, climate change or global warming, and therefore you need a global solution to this, which means bringing in all of these countries to cooperate. So that idea, that idea becomes a vehicle for the ideology of globalism, mm. and what it fundamentally means is a transfer of wealth from the poorest countries mm-hmm. and 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 the the countries that are underdeveloped to the most developed countries who are now going to sell you their expensive and unreliable technology in place of cheap, reliable fossil fuels, um, which in countries that haven't didn't even have their own industrial revolution are only now beginning to get electrical power into homes. I mean, it's the reason why Africa is called the dark continent, because you look at it from a satellite from, from space mm-hmm. and, and at nighttime, it's dark except for a bit in South Africa, because so much many in, in the population still don't even have the basic amenities that we enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so while we, with our massive supplies of, you know, mothballing the the uh, the Keystone Pipeline, for mm-hmm. example, right. um, so that we can uh, put, have diminished the supply of oil, mm-hmm. uh, that makes so-called alternative energy mm-hmm. sources more competitive, and then you can start selling that technology around the world this is all this imperialistic agenda they are they're an expression of that that all of the world must come into the modern secular western humanistic idea of science and reason and this must be imposed upon everyone Mm. and doesn't matter who they are whether they're undeveloped or not and the 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 sort of thing that's often done to salve the conscience in these contexts is well we'll offer more handouts mm-hmm. we'll offer right. more um, uh, we'll offer more debt mm-hmm. to these countries that mm-hmm. they can't pay back mm-hmm. um, and that way keep them under our control and so there is a kind of imperialism involved in those things because they are being driven let's face it they are being mm-hmm. driven by the powerful um, Western nations mm-hmm. you know. It's not it's not Zambia and Ghana driving uh, uh, you know the, the the climate apocalypse is it? Uh, but it's it's the it's the Western powers who've got this utopian ideological uh, vision. So without getting into all the details of how we might talk about the whys and wherefores of climate change and all mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff, the mm-hmm. the point is is that yes, those things are an expression. Of the way they're the way they're being dealt with are an expression are an expression of globalism, mm. and maybe that brings me to a final point just to just to to to, to wrap this up with mm-hmm. the interesting very latest twist that we have on globalism mm-hmm. is a global technocracy, uh, which is of course related to uh, the the so called climate mm-hmm. crisis mm-hmm. because this is the thing they all go back to when they talk about the need for this technocratic. 
um, global governance. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the Great Reset, and I and I read passages from Klaus Schwab's book, um, and uh, various other things that Doctor No there had to say about. Uh, We're still recovering. About, yeah, <laughs> about uh, the the changing world and the fourth industrial revolution and all of this, and this sort mm. of is neo-Marxist rhetoric because mm. for Marx, um, and actually for communism as a whole, history itself is endless progress mm. now of course marx had a technical term for this or the philosophers talk about dialectical materialism mm. and it means this uh this uh, constant thesis antithesis synthesis that synthesis that moves uh society forward in this constant state of materialistic progress um through work and in particular through technology and the latest twist on that is of course cybernetics Mm. and uh viewing society almost as a cybernetic machine and how we are going how our technology is going to ultimately drive away poverty it's going to d drive away disease it's going to uh solve every human problem um in an in an in an almost endless uh movement toward a never arrived at uh perfection mm -hmm. um uh you know we could go in, in the discussion about technology, you could go back to um, Heidegger and his critique of some of this. And actually, George Grant, the Canadian mm. philosopher I wrote about some time back, um, the, the counter reaction tends to be we've got to retreat from the task of technology. We yep. must stop progress. We must halt all advance. We must meditate on being, uh, on the concepts of being. We have to get back to uh, Platonic conceptions we we've got to rid ourselves of this notion that we're moving towards anything because of course globalism and this is perhaps a, a helpful place to wrap this up is in a certain sense a bad copy it's a bastardization mm. of the kingdom of god mm. uh, because we are of course commissioned in scripture to work to rule subdue to uh, turn creation into a god glorifying culture and of course that includes technology but in this m marxist vision or neo-marxist view Technology is the tool which liberates man from oppression. Mm. It liberates him from the oppression of creation itself. Uh, it liberates him from the, the, the current relationship between the, uh, the, the worker and the, the, the manager, the, the producers and, 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 and those who govern the production process. Mm. So uh, technology in this view is, 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 is seen as a kind of liberator for, for all mankind and a sort of weight, a responsibility is placed upon technology that it can never um, actually deliver in, in terms of these very optimistic views of what it will what it will do in this law of historical development. So let me just uh, find something I wanted to read to you here from um, just to wrap this up from Egbert Sherman. He says, um, the immediate relation, this is a book, by the way, called Technology in the Future. He says, the immediate relation of the human being to the whole of reality which gives him purpose and mind in his technological creativity in such a way that he decides to view the whole of reality as the body and stuff of his own creative force. The first trademark of him, this is now talking about Marx, the first trademark of his philosophy is, in our view, precisely the technocracy to which he would only give uh, a new communistic form in place of the form based upon private property so 
in communism, the human being as a societal being is a technocrat. So society becomes inescapably technocratic. Uh, he says, in summary, in Marxism, humanity as a species liberates itself in and through technology from all oppression and bondage, whether natural or societal. It's apparent that for the Marxist, technology becomes a religion. Such a person believes that technological development brings progress that will issue in a kingdom mm. of freedom. And uh, that is the, that's the rub right now. That, and that's the, that's, the, that's the copy that globalism represents, especially in its latest Western form of technocratic globalism. And we're seeing this even as we've talked before in the response to um, the COVID issue is that somehow man's technology, especially if man merges with his technology in a rather unique way in this transhumanist conception, will liberate himself uh, and realize uh, his total freedom. Hence, back to your comment, Ryan, about the goal, the goal mm -hmm. being so radically different. And um, let, me, let me close with the words of Doiverd because... Um, in his discussion of the nature of social institutions picks up uh, the reason as to why um, the Christian faith can never embrace these totalitarian dreams and can never root itself in these imperialistic uh, visions. He says the Christian religion linked to Old Testament revelation provides a new religious ground motive for reflection on the foundations of human society. It is the, the theme of creation, fall into sin, and redemption by Christ Jesus in the communion of the Holy Spirit. It reveals that the religious community of the human race is rooted in creation, in the solidarity of the fall into sin, and in the spiritual kingdom of God through Christ Jesus. In this belief, Christianity destroys in principle any claim made by a temporal community to encompass all of human life in a totalitarian sense. It demands internal independence for the church in its relation to the state and sharpens our view of the proper nature of the spheres of life. And so the, the, the biblical, the scriptural response is not retreat from technology. It's not retreat from progress in history. It's not the abandonment of the cultural mandate which, you know, some would say, well, if, if in, in opposing globalism, you're abandoning the, the, this call. No, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's recognizing that the, the true basis of unity of the human race is our creation mm -hmm. in Christ, through Christ, our fall into sin, our redemption through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's the basis mm -hmm. of international community. And Ryan, you mentioned a, a little while back that um, uh, perhaps not verbatim, that marvelous text in Revelation chapter 5. Mm-hmm. And they sang a new song beginning at verse 9 with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seal and open it. For you were slain and by your blood, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become kingdoms, uh, God's, you have caused them to become God's kingdom and his priests, and they will reign on the earth. That is Revelation 5. That's the biblical conception mm -hmm. that our unity is rooted in Christ. And look there, 
that unity does not break down the distinction of language, hmm. of, uh, of, of tongues, so of, so of languages, of peoples, cultural distinctives of peoples, and of nations. Those different peoples, nations, and cultures are together made a kingdom of priests because we positivize God's word in all these different, in, in these distinct ways in our cultures to live in obedience to him. And we bring our uniqueness as mm -hmm. different peoples mm -hmm. and cultures to the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. It's not an egalitarian, equalitarian democratization of all mm -hmm. of life. It retains that uh, uh, unity within diversity. It's a unity within diversity. And that's why we cannot buy into the reign of globalism and its utopian, egalitarian, rationalistic order. Mm. Uh, that's a bad copy of what God wants. And I think the nation of Israel gives us a great picture when God established a nation of what a nation is supposed to look like. Unique, mm. distinct with its boundaries, worshiping God, but able to embrace peoples who are ready to live under that law order. And it's a beautiful picture at the end of time there of this root unity of creation uh, of humankind in Jesus Christ from this diversity of peoples that all bring their uniqueness into the kingdom of God as they express in their own uh, unique context obedience to the whole word of God. Hmm. Amen. Well, thanks so much for that, Joe and Joe, Ryan. Thank you for the conversation today. Uh, this has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. We hope you will join us again next week for another Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time